Second Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to be in verse 11. So I do, I have two different translations that I'm using here. I have uh, the NIV. That is a more dynamic translation. So if you're reading like a, a longer passage of scripture and you're trying to kind of try to understand what's going on, then the NIV is really good for that. And then I use the ESV, and this is not the only translation that's like this, but the ESV is a more literal word-for-word translation. So there are translations that try to be thought-for-thought, and they will probably make more sense to you if you're reading an English translation and it's an English Bible. It would be the same thing if it were Spanish or another language. If they're translating thought, you, you just we need to realize, okay, so there are people that are very, very hardcore King James Bible and so forth. The King James is beautiful. That's great. But you have to understand the word of God in your own language, vernacular, right? So we would all assume uh, you know, my assumption is if you're listening to me right now in English, you speak English well. And so um, we would assume, well, okay, you know, we just need an English translation. But there are different ways to translate this from the original language, which in Hebrew, in the Old Testament is Hebrew, and in the New Testament is Greek. So we're taking that over into our language so if we go word for word, then, okay, that seems very, very accurate, but it also can seem very wooden, very stilted, uh, harder to understand in certain respects because that's not necessarily the way English is spoken and understood. So when you have a translation like the NIV, it says, okay, here's this phrase. We think the best way to render this in English would be this, okay? Whereas in ESV, it's like this word, this word in English, this word, this word in English, right? That sounds great, except when you read a passage, it can seem more difficult to understand. All that to say you will have disparagers of scripture that will say, well, there's all these different translations. How can you know? You want more translations, okay? Because these are different groups of scholars that are bringing this original text over into English. And so if you lay those down alongside each other, then you can get a better understanding as to what we're dealing with. So I'm not reading many translations, although, as I've said before, um, if you want to get my daily Bible, uh, I send out daily Bible verses um, to everybody that's on my list, and all you have to do is text the the word daily Bible, D-A-I-L-Y-B-I-B-L-E, daily Bible, to 94000, and you'll get that from me. Sometimes I will send that um, in... New Living Translation, sometimes in New International Version, and sometimes in other translations. There's a new translation that is out. Um, I think John MacArthur is largely behind it um, that I really like. It's a more literal translation. 
And uh, I've been sending that out as well. Okay. So we're going to go back up here. And so that we can get in context, I'm going to start with uh, verse 1 of chapter 5. And I'm going to take these glasses off because they're meant to see you people out there. So now you're all a blur. You're like a Monet painting. But if I get this close right here, this is really nice and clear. So I love it. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, that's your body, we have a building from God, that's your resurrected body, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we're, we groan and we are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal, that's our heavenly body, right, may be swallowed up by life. Verse 5, now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to be to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So that's where we were as of last week. Now we continue for this week. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves again to you, but we are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are, quote unquote, out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us. Therefore, uh, because we are in, because we are convinced that one died for all, that is, Jesus died for all of us, and therefore all died. We all die in Christ. We all die to ourselves, or we all die with Christ. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. And here's a good memory verse for you, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old is gone, the new is, is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though Christ were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin 
in our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Okay, so there you go. I read the whole chapter. We're not going to get through all of that today. Let's look at verses 11 and 12, okay? And now 11 and 12 in the ESV, once again, a more literal translation. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not what is in the heart. So remember, the Apostle Paul is writing, so I know this is Second Corinthians because it's our Second Corinthian letter, right? In actuality, the Apostle Paul has already written the Corinthians two previous letters. He wrote a letter before 1 Corinthians. Then he wrote what is what we know as our 1 Corinthians. We don't have that first letter he wrote them. The Lord has not seen fit to, um, to keep that for us. Then we have our 1 Corinthians, which was the second letter he wrote to them. And now we have our 2 Corinthians, which was actually the third letter that he wrote to them, okay? Um, He was trying to curtail problems that he found in this church, right? So this letter is an apologetic for Paul's ministry to the Corinthian church. He wasn't concerned about his standing with God. He wasn't trying to manipulate people and wasn't trying to unburden his conscience for having fallen short with the Corinthians or having done them any wrong. He was looking for a recommendation. He wasn't, excuse me, looking for a recommendation from them, and he didn't need their approval. Rather, they needed to respect Paul and the teaching he had brought to them for their own sake. Paul appeared to their, appealed, not appeared, appealed to their consciences. He was saying, believe what you know to be true about us. So um, the Corinthians had received some teachers that were leading them in a different direction than the direction that Paul had led them. And um, these were likely... um, folks that were um, entrenched in Judaism and were seeking to um, lead the Corinthians to believe that they had more authority than Paul, right? But the Apostle Paul is saying, no, I, you know, I brought the gospel to you. The Lord brought me to you. There's a purpose for this, okay? Um, Who led you to the Lord? Who preached the gospel to you? So for me, um, I heard the gospel on television. Um, I can remember, do you all know who Billy Graham is? Right? I can remember listening to, uh, they used to, you know, do Billy Graham crusades and uh, it'd be these big stadiums, but they were televised. And I would watch that on television. And he preached the good news about Jesus. Jesus died for your sins. He rose. And, you know, he's calling you to believe in him. And so, you know, I was a young teenager and having a lot of difficulties in my life. And the gospel resonated with me. It appealed to me. It made sense to me. 
um, it was obvious the Holy Spirit was, you know, um, convicting me. And then um, there was a church that uh, broadcast its services on television. Um, and this was on uh, Sunday mornings. So back then, we didn't have, you know, you get cable TV. How many channels do you have on cable? Like, you know, 150, 200, 300, whatever. It's a ridiculous number of channels on cable. And they're on like all day long. Back then, we had five channels. We had ABC, NBC, and CBS, right? For us, where I was, that was Channel 3, Channel 5, and Channel 8. And, uh, and then you had PBS, which was the public broadcasting channel. And, uh, yeah, that was pretty much all you could watch. <laughs> so, you know, I'm a kid and uh, a young teenager, and it's Sunday morning. Well, the only things on on Sunday morning were political programs and religious programs. That's it. No entertainment. So I turn on Channel 5, which is the local affiliate, and um, they broadcast this service from this church, the North Phoenix Baptist Church in Phoenix, Arizona. And it was in downtown Phoenix, and, you know, the cameras rolled. And, you know, the thing is, my grandma uh, was a really very religious lady. And she used to send us all of this literature and letters and so forth. And it seemed to me, even as a young teenager, that all these different preachers were doing was asking for money. Have you noticed this? This is, this is my beef, by the way. Okay, so we just got over, you know, the, the 2022 election season, right? And so there's plenty to be, you know, concerned about and so forth. But all they do is use it as an opportunity to raise more money. You know, blah, 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 this is happening and these people are the devil and you need to give us money, Right? And I would assume that it doesn't matter which side you're on. They're simply seeking to collect money. Well, you know, I might have been a, a teenager, but I realize that they're just trying to get money out of everybody. But here's this church, the North Phoenix Baptist Church, Phoenix, Arizona, um, in Central, uh, on Central Avenue in Phoenix. And they broadcast their services. And you know what? They didn't ask for any money. They didn't appeal for donations. They just did their worship service. And the preacher preached the gospel. And you know what? I was impressed. I'm a kid. And I'm impressed. And so I'd gotten in some trouble with the law and wasn't going the right direction. And I told my parents, specifically my mom, hey, I want to go to that church. And she's like, get in there. This child is broken. He's messed up. He needs some church, right? And uh, she never went to church, but she'd grown up in church, and so she knew that, uh, you know, I needed what they had to offer. And so we went. <laughs> I can still remember. My mom drove me down there, and I was looking for this church, and I knew what it looked like, right? Because they always, 
when they broadcast it, they always, you know, showed the outside of the building. And so my mom drove me to this church that was just up the street. And I was like, no, I don't, I don't, that's not the one. She's in the parking lot. She said, just go into that one. (laughs) And I said, no, that's not the right one. Well, thankfully, my mom listened to me, right? And she drove just a little further down the road. And lo and behold, I was like, that's it. That's it. Right? So I go in this church and... You know, I went there. Thankfully, my mom was willing to bring me to that church several times. And uh, they were in the process of building a new building at the time. Wow. Those little teenagers up there are having fun, aren't they? Woo! That's noisy. And uh, so I went to this this church like, Eh, probably three or four times. And they built a new building. And finally, I got to the age where I could drive. And I drove myself to church. And thankfully, again, my parents let me drive the the truck and go to church. And uh, long story short, and this will tell you my age, but, you know, there's a few of you that are older in the room, so it won't seem that old. Easter Sunday of 1978. Yep, 1978. I gave my life to Jesus officially at the North Phoenix Baptist Church, right? Because they preached the gospel. They continued to share the truth, right? So here's this letter. It is an apologetic to the Corinthian church. They are being turned away from the gospel to another gospel, right? And the Apostle Paul says, the Lord Jesus is going to judge us all for what we've done and what we've not done. And then he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We persuade. The literal in the, in the Greek is we persuade men. But what we are is known to God, and I hope uh, it is also known to your conscience. So... Um, these Corinthians were receiving the gospel from Paul because he very much believed in what he was doing. I think the biggest problem we have today, it's not immigration. uh, It's not inflation. um, It's not whatever you may think it is. It is that people don't fear the Lord. They don't fear the Lord. You are foolish if you don't fear God. You you are truly foolish if you don't fear God. So why do we try to persuade others to earn favor with God? No, because we want them to be saved as we are, as I hope you are. I am forgiven, and I want to share that gift. Someone who is walking in faith doesn't fear that they will be condemned, nor are they worried about earning rewards. The person who has faith in Christ is a new creation. We heard that in 2 Corinthians 5.17, right? You are a new creation in Christ. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Um, They have a new nature with a new spiritual DNA like Christ. The image of God has been restored God is love. God loves people. 
so much that he sent his son to die for them. Believers love people to see them because they don't want to see anyone condemned. In fact, we fear for their eternal destiny and share the gospel frequently, urgently, and universally as the result. If you do not, then take a look at your heart. Are you really a believer? Has Christ come in and changed you? Do you believe there's a heaven? Do you believe there's a hell? Do you believe that everyone's going to heaven? They're not. If everyone's going to heaven, heaven will be like earth, and earth is a mess, isn't it? Right? So there's a hell, a place of eternal destruction. So do you care enough about other people to persuade them to say, hey, you know, this isn't about winning a political argument. This isn't about candidate A or candidate B. This is about eternity with or apart from God. Do you believe you will be with God for eternity? That's heaven. And the only way we can be sure of that, and I preach this at every funeral that I have the privilege of officiating, is to put our faith in Christ. Christ is the only one who has beaten death. Anything else is speculation. Now, obviously, I believe what the Bible teaches, but I'm going to talk to people where they're at, not where I'm at. Okay? Why do you believe you're going to heaven? Well, you know, because, you know, my, my good works are better than my bad works. Heaven is full of perfect people who have been perfected in Christ. Are you a perfect person? No, I'm not. You're not. Okay? If we're going to inherit eternal life, we have got to be perfected by Christ. So we've got to come to him. We've got to receive his forgiveness. We've got to receive his perfection. Okay? In the New American Commentary, David Garland provides a thought-provoking observation. Quote, It is said that whatever it is that one fears, whatever it is that one fears the most, that is what one will serve the most. Hmm. Whatever it is that one fears the most, that is what one will serve the most. That's insightful. This is why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. This is the first Bible verse I teach our karate kids. Now, if that is true, and I think it may well be, then it explains why our worship is half-hearted, our service is so infrequent and weak. We do not fear God. We don't. This church would be full every Sunday if we feared God. But we don't. We have entirely too much stock or hope in this world, which is passing away. This may be the backlash from preaching cheap grace. What is cheap grace? The assumption that we may do whatever we wish and whatever we please, and God won't care. Paul had the judgment of God always before him. Remember, before verse 11 is verse 10, we will all appear before the judgment seat. You're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. I am going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. What will you have to offer? What will you have to say, right? Um, 
I don't believe that the apostle feared that the verdict would go against him. He had confident faith that he was justified by Christ's atonement on the cross. So if you put your faith in Christ, to appear before Jesus is not, wow, am I going to go to heaven? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe he died for your sins? Do you believe he rose? Then you're going to heaven. But you're still going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, right? And you will have to give an answer for the life that you've lived in this world. That's why I said last week, um, there will be no tears in heaven, but I think there will be tears shed at the judgment seat of Christ when we realize how much of our life we just wasted by not living for Jesus. Um, Dr. David Garland in his commentary on this passage says, many live like the rich fool of Jesus' parable and forget to factor God into their business spreadsheets. God calls them fools. The epithet recalls the words of the psalmist who says, a fool says in his heart there is no God. That's Psalm 14, 1. Persons may, never, <clears throat> persons may never say anything like this out loud, but they live their lives as if, there were, as if there were no God, fooling themselves into believing the earthly realities such as money and power will somehow protect them. Man, people are into politics today, aren't they? I mean, I know we just came off of an election, but see, we're so this worldly that we think the political is what really matters. If your candidate wins, right? If your party wins, that's what really matters. Really? That's not what matters. I'm watching all of this, okay? And I have certain hopes, but I see that God is working providentially through the election. I see that God is working providentially by permitting certain candidates to gain power so that we can see what they really stand for and what that really means, all right? And, you know, at the risk of this turning into a political sermon, um, there are those that we trust and we watch and we permit to take power and then they act foolishly. Will we be wise enough to vote differently next time, right? So, I think there was the hope on uh, the Republican side that there would be more of a quote-unquote red wave than there has been. It appears, and I honestly I hope it is the case for the sake of balance, that Republicans will gain power in one or both houses of Congress, but this is just so that one party can't do whatever it wants to do, right? Uh, you know, uh, Biden has clearly said that if they have uh, control of Congress, that he will uh, pass legislation to codify abortion to the point of birth. Do you really realize how obscene that is? Even Roe versus Wade didn't do that, okay? Um so when there's a balance, then the two sides have to kind of fight it out. And I see 
the Lord working through that and the Lord speaking to people or attempting to speak to people and saying, I know you're on the right and you think you have all the answers. I know you're on the left and you're sanctimonious and you think you have all the answers, but you don't have all the answers. You don't have all the answers, right? So, um, yeah. Uh, David Garland continues... They live their lives as if there were no God, fooling themselves into believing that earthly realities such as money and power, political power, right, will somehow protect them. Apparently, some lady in California is now a billionaire. I don't know how that happened. So, I went up to the lottery machine because uh, you know you can buy them at a machine, right? You don't have to buy them from a person. I went up to the lottery machine at um, Walmart. It had $5 worth of credit on it. Somebody had put $5 in. Your son says, you know what? I don't have to buy a lottery ticket. If the Lord wants me to win the lottery, he'll let me win the lottery without buying a lottery ticket. I walked up to the machine. It had $5 worth of credit on it. Dude, I bought two free Powerball tickets and uh, one Texas Lotto, and it cost me nothing. And if I win, well, then you should be happy for me. <laughs> but the point is, at the at the point that I that I chose to take four dollars and put it toward Powerball. Powerball was saying that nobody had won that $2 billion, whatever. Some lady in California won it. I'm like, right? So now if I win, it's only $20 million. Oh, dear. I know, that's terrible, isn't it? Hey, but it was free. You can call it gambling if you want, but I didn't even spend $2 on it, so, right? But see, here's the thing. We're all about money and power, and we're focused on these this-worldly things. But this world is going away, right? And our friend, Miss Mary, we're praying for her to stick around with us for, you know, another decade and a half, okay, at least. Um, but you got to be ready, friends. Whether you're 30 or 40 or 50 or 60, 70, you got to be ready, because this isn't all there is. There's something coming on. Um, they're fooling themselves into believing that earthly realities such as money and power will somehow protect them from their tottering finitude. Woo! What a good word. As they plan how to make their futures more happy and secure, others may try to anesthetize themselves from any perturbing fear of God. They contrive a sugary theology with an indulgent and permissive God who winks and we uh, who winks at all that we do or have become. So what do you fear the most in this life? According to David Garland, that's what you end up worshiping. What ways can you see yourself serving or worshiping that fear? Perhaps we could ask it this way. Do you serve certain masters to keep your fear at bay? So when I was a young teenager, one of the things that drove me to Christ was fear. It doesn't always have to be bad, right? I feared evil. 
When I was 11 years old, I snuck into a movie. Okay? Went to movie theaters, you know, and I snuck into this movie. It was an R-rated movie, and it was about evil and demons, and I won't mention it because I don't want you to watch it. Okay? And I didn't even watch all of it. I snuck into it just long enough because I knew that my parents were coming to get me, right? I was I was an 11-year-old stud. I was dating a girl that was 14, and we were at the movie theater. And uh, I went into this movie, and it was horrifying. It was really, really scary, Okay. I had terrible nightmares about this movie. I didn't even watch all of it. I just watched, you know, maybe a third of it, okay? And uh, that drove me to, to Christ, to be honest with you. It drove me to realize there is good and there is evil. There is a devil. There is a God. And we need to put our faith in the Lord. We really, really do. And you need to realize that. You need to realize that. Okay, there is a real devil, there is a real God, there is a real heaven, there is a real hell, and we need to put our faith in Jesus. And when we have our faith in Jesus, we have protection from all of that. And that really, really, I mean, it saved me. I was terrified. I would go to bed at night terrified. And when I finally realized that God loved me and that Jesus died to save me, and that Jesus had power over the enemy, power over the devil, I'm telling you guys, it really, really was a remarkable transformation in my life, right? So here it says um, in this passage that because of the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Well, the scripture says, don't fear the one that can destroy the body. That's the devil, but fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. That's God. So the body's going to die sooner or later. But you don't need to fear the one that kills the body. Okay? Heaven forbid we endure persecution from godless people. But you don't need to fear that. Because you are going to die Sorry, I'm not trying to terrify you or threaten you. Or You are going to die. You need to be ready to die. You really do. Fear the Lord. Because he is the one, he is the only one that has uh, eternal life as a gift that he offers you. He is the only one who can um, deliver you from eternal life death, right? Well, people may serve addictions to alcohol or drugs to escape anxiety or worry, and that's a type of fear. People absorb themselves in academics or their careers. They distract themselves with entertainment, games. They become obsessed with competition or personal projects, all to escape the fear of insignificance, loneliness, and death. There's also the fear of doubt. Instead of facing doubt and seeking answers to their questions, some ignore it or run from it. 
there is an underlying assumption that their doubts may turn them away from the love and hope and peace offered by the Christian God. Personally, I fear God more than I fear being wrong about his existence. If I'm wrong, I'll die and nothing will happen. Do you realize that? Okay. This is Pascal's wager. If God exists, right, and he calls all into judgment, and I reject him, then I pay an eternal penalty. But what if God doesn't exist? I don't believe that, but what if God doesn't exist? What's the penalty? There is none. What are you willing to bet? Here is uh, Encyclopedia Britannica's um, assessment or statement of what I've just referred to as Pascal's Wager. Pascal's Wager, a practical argument for the belief in God formulated by French mathematician and philosopher Blaise Pascal in his Pensées. Pascal applied elements of game theory to show that belief in the Christian religion is rational. He argued that people can choose to believe in God or can choose not to believe in God and that God either exists or he does not. Correct? Yeah. Right? That's correct. Under these conditions, if a person believes in the Christian God and this God actually exists, they gain infinite happiness. If a person does not believe in the Christian God and God exists, they receive infinite suffering. On the other hand, if a person believes in the Christian God and God does not exist, then they receive some finite disadvantages from a life of Christian living. And if a person does not believe this God and, and God does not exist, then they receive some finite pleasure from life lived unhindered by Christian morality. And by the way, that's the reason why the majority of people choose to be atheists. They just don't want God calling the shots. They just want to do whatever they want to do. Okay? So, your bet is God doesn't exist. I can do whatever I want to do and get a limited amount of finite pleasure. And if God does not indeed exist, then I just die and that's it. But if he does, my word. That's really bad, isn't it? But if, as I believe, and as I think most of you believe, God does exist, and we choose to put our faith in Jesus, sure, we limit ourselves from certain um, earthly pleasures, which, by the way, end up not being pleasurable after a certain period of time. Okay, There's a lot of things that people pursue earthly pleasures that people pursue that end up being destructive to them, okay? I would argue that following the Christian God, even if he did not exist, is more beneficial on earth than not following the Christian God, even if he did not exist, okay? But the reality is, if you follow the Christian God and he does not exist, there's no penalty, there's nothing. You gain some things in this life by having an ethical life, but there's no eternal consequence, okay? But if someone decides they just want to live however they want to live, they want to live in a worldly fashion, and they die, and God does exist, 
Friends, that's a remarkable, significant, eternal consequence. So that's what Pascal said. As Pascal states, let us weigh the gain and the loss wagered that God is. Let us estimate these two chances. If you gain, you gain all. If you lose, you lose nothing. Wager then without hesitation that he is. So um, there was an early edition of the New Living Translation. I have a copy of it. They published a second edition shortly afterwards. So if you buy the New Living Translation today, which, by the way, is a good dynamic translation of Scripture, okay? But if you buy the, the uh, New Living Translation today, it will not read like this. But I can show you the first edition that I have upstairs. And in the first edition of the New Living Translation of um, um, Isaiah 8.13, it says this. If you fear God, you need fear nothing else. Amen? Amen. So what are you afraid of? Remember when we were all afraid of COVID? We all thought we were going to die. And most of us wore masks, but some of us didn't. And we wouldn't leave our houses. I said the same thing. If you fear God, you need fear nothing else. Right? So if you listen to the right, if you listen to the left, you know, they're going to tell you that the end of democracy, the end of the republic has come upon us because the other party has been elected. Are you serious right now? I mean, it's obvious that some people believe that. I, you know, we just look at the election and who got elected. I'm like, wow. So in Pennsylvania, you have Dr. Oz versus this character named Fetterman. And they elected Fetterman. Wow. You apparently were really, really listening to the left side of the media because the obvious choice, the most intelligent person. And by the way, Dr. Oz is not an incredibly conservative individual. He's really kind of moderate, really kind of left-leaning. But they chose this guy, this Fetterman character. I, it's like our current president. He can't even construct a, uh, a coherent sentence. But because you listen to the media and what they tell you and they're fear-mongering, yet, do you know in Pennsylvania they voted to elect a dead man? He's dead. He's dead. And they elected him. Obviously, you're listening to the media, okay? This is insanity. All right. So, nonetheless, um, I started late, so I'm ending a tiny bit late. But uh, in the end, we put our faith and our hope in the Lord, not in the left, not in the right, not in the Democrats, not in the Republicans, right? Uh, not in a particular political candidate. Uh, we trust the Lord. We know that he's got good things in store for us, and we're going to follow him and live for him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you all for coming. Please be praying for Miss Mary. God bless you.